Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast where we dive deep to unravel a question, a conundrum, one of those bizarre thoughts that keeps us up at night. As a kid, beach holidays were the epitome of adventure. Armed with no more than a thin plastic spade, I would pick out a plot of sand, usually too close to the incoming tide, and start digging. I was an explorer on the verge of a huge discovery, clearly about to tunnel so deep I would, at any moment, break through, dive in and pop out upside down in Australia. Wondering what's beneath our feet has long captivated our collective imagination, When Jules Verne wrote Journey to the Centre of the Earth in 1864, he described his characters discovering an underground world complete with an ocean, monsters and a vast ceiling filled with aurora and clouds. In reality, our knowledge of what's at the Earth's core is a constantly evolving science. Where sci-fi speculated, scientists once thought that the inner core was a solid ball of iron nickel. But just earlier this year, researchers confirmed that there may be more within, an inner, inner core. Today on Why, we're asking, what's at the Earth's core and can we use it? The inner core is very small, right? So when you think about it, it's less than 1% of the volume of the rest of the Earth. So it's a tiny planet within the planet. Professor Hervoy Kalcic is head of geophysics at the Australian National University. When the seismic waves move through the inner core, they move with different speeds in different directions. It's almost like having a different highways through the inner core. Some of them are more congested than others. So the waves move faster in, in certain directions. We use seismic waves to basically infer what's inside the Earth. And as you know, seismic waves are created or generated in large earthquakes. They uh, move through the Earth and they bring back the information about 
the Earth structure and dynamics. And this is what we investigate. And one of the pioneers of our field back in the 1930s, in the same decade when Pluto was discovered, Inge Lehmann, a Danish seismologist, discovered that in the was known at the time as the core of the Earth, there was another nucleus inside that liquid outer core. She called it the inner nucleus at the time. Later, it was discovered or it was first hypothesized that what Inge Lehmann had discovered back in 1936 is actually a solid part of that liquid core. So since then, we call it the inner core. So in general, you can divide, and you probably remember from your primary or high school books, the division of the Earth to basic parts. So the crust on top, which is relatively thin, it's about 30 to 60 kilometers thin. And then we have a huge mantle that slowly convects and the core mantle boundary approximately halfway down the Earth's radius. And then the liquid core that's vigorously convecting. And finally, the inner core with the radius of 1,200 kilometers. And just to compare it with the moon, for example, it's a little bit smaller than the moon. The radius of the moon is about 1,700 kilometers. What's that core made up of? Which elements is it constituted of? As you mentioned, the iron and nickel are the most likely element, but then there are some other suspects, the so-called light chemical elements. And these light elements could be most likely oxygen, hydrogen. Some scientists speculate that there's also sulfur and silicon, for instance. So those are the light chemical elements that most likely mix with the alloy of iron and nickel. Extreme temperature and pressure conditions. Yeah, I was going to ask how hot it is down there in the core. Yeah, and the, and the journalists usually like to ask this question. And I like to answer that in your imagination, if you would somehow be able to dismantle the earth. So imagine you remove the crust and the mantle and the outer core. So what you would see is a solid inner core that has about 6,000 degrees of Celsius. So at least for a moment, the inner core would appear like a shining star because the temperature is equivalent to the temperature at the sun's surface, about 6,000 degrees. But at the same time, I must say this is one of the biggest uncertainties in modern science, because we don't know that temperature exactly. So it could be anything between 4,500 and, and perhaps 6,500 degrees Celsius. Hervoy, it was your research group that presented the evidence on the, the idea of an inner inner core or the fifth layer. How did you gather that evidence? As you said, my research group has recently presented evidence, in fact, several lines of evidence in the last decade that shows that the inner part of the solid inner core has different properties than the rest of the inner core. And I must say, we were not the first to propose the innermost inner core. So the idea 
came in the early 2000s, also from two seismologists in the United States who studied the travel times. Uh, many of these travel times collected over many years. And what they found is that the sound waves that move through the inner core move differently in different directions. So when you think about it, the boundary between the innermost inner core and the rest of the inner core is different than other main layers of the Earth. You know, those cross-sections that we talk about, that we saw in the textbooks. So that boundary is much more subtle in the sense that it's not a boundary layer between two materials with different chemical composition. In this case, the innermost inner core, what it represents is something that we refer to a different anisotropic properties. And I must explain very briefly what anisotropy is. Anisotropy is just the property of the material to behave differently in a different directions. So that means when the seismic waves move through the inner core, they move with different speeds in different directions. It's almost like having a different highways through the inner core. Some of them are more congested than others. So the waves move faster in, in certain directions. And by studying many of these waves from large earthquakes uh, recorded at, at the seismic instruments on different parts of the globe, we showed that the innermost part of the inner core has the slowest direction of propagation in the plane that forms an angle of about 50 degrees with the rotation axis of the Earth. So in this particular plane, sound waves are the slowest. Whereas in the rest of the inner core, the slowest plane is in the equatorial plane. So it's a quasi parallel to the equatorial plane. And that's that subtle difference between the innermost part of the inner core and the rest of the inner core. So the way how the sound waves behave. If at the moment you're relying on large earthquakes for your source materials, the, the seismic waves for your research, is there a risk that where there was some future, where there was less ethics, there could be a desire to kind of create seismic events, maybe atomic bomb blasts down these big shafts and so on like that, to sort of use that? Is there an ethical risk with badly done research? Great question. <laughs> I would say that possibly no, but you know, to use something that's an equivalent to atomic bomb is a meteorite impact. And we in fact have that capacity to use meteorite impacts on other planets. And I mentioned our research on Martian core. We in fact used Marsquakes combined with the meteorite impact on, on Mars. So as long as you have either a tectonically or should I say, if you have an active planet or the moon coupled with meteorite impacts and maybe tidal forces that can also cause quakes, I think we have enough sources to approach studies of those planetary interiors, including the icy moons in the distant corners of the solar system. So with all of this energy and, and dynamic movement of, of, of these elements in, in the core of the Earth at such high temperature and high pressure, how does that impact our lives on the surface and what happens on the surface of the Earth? 
Well, first of all, the inner core is very small, right? So when you think about it, it's less than 1% of the volume of the rest of the Earth. So it's a tiny planet within the planet. But as the time goes by, and as the Earth cools down, the inner core solidifies out of the liquid outer core, right? So that happens at some point in the Earth's history that the inner core starts solidifying out. So when you think about the inner core and its radius of 1,200 kilometers, and what we know today is that the growth rate of the inner core is about one millimeter per year. So you can backtrack that and you can calculate that the age of the inner core would be a little bit over one billion years. So that gives you an idea when in the Earth's history the inner core starts crystallizing or start solidifying out of the liquid outer core. And in the process of solidification, additional heat that we call latent heat is released. And that heat actually drives vigorous convection in the liquid outer core. And together with the rotation of the planet, and this vigorous convection, like in a, you know, in a cup of espresso, where, where you have uh, the hot coffee rising and then cooling down at the surface and then sinking. So that's what we refer to as a convection. So when you have convection together with the rotation of the Earth, uh, that creates the so-called geodynamo, right? Uh, and the geodynamo generates and maintains the magnetic field of the Earth. And you asked me about the connection with the surface. Well, the magnetic field that's generated in the Earth's core protects life on surface from harmful cosmic radiation. So this is the connection between the inner core that we not even think about, right? And the surface uh, of our planet and, and the life on it. So it's, it's this tiny, tiny fragment of the Earth is vital for keeping us all alive. But if it's growing, what implication does that have in the deep geological future? Well, yeah, you can think about it. I said the rate of growth is about one millimeter per year. So you can calculate that how long it would take for the liquid outer core to become completely solid, right? Or to be consumed by the solid fraction of the inner core. And if you think about the magnetic field that, and that this would stop the magnetic field from being generated because you know, the volume of the liquid outer core that you need for convection gets small, gets critically small, so that the magnetic field ceases. So that would take billions of years, and we don't have to worry about this because by that time we would be consumed by the sun, right? Because the sun will become a red giant before that happens, probably. That's an optimistic scenario, right? But how the magnetic field changes its strength and how the magnetic poles behave and, and how they switch polarity is the subject of study and the vigorous debates that, that take place in the, in the you know, conference rooms around the world.
So, the Earth's core is roughly the same size as the Moon and is a dense liquid nucleus within that needs further investigation. I'm wondering whether anyone has had a serious attempt at reaching and mining the Earth's core. It seems like the kind of project that would be right up the street of a bored multimillionaire with a massive pile of cash and an ego to match. Not that I'm aware of in the, you know, in the scientific community. You know, when you think about what we achieved, uh, we really just scratched the surface of the Earth. With the deepest hole that uh, we drilled is something about 12.5 kilometers. And this was during the Cold War era. This was done in Siberia. And we haven't really reached the boundary surface between the crust and the mantle yet. But this is on the horizon, so... We built a spectacular ship that will be able to drill through the Earth's crust at the places where it's thinnest, and this means the oceanic crust, which might be only less than 10 kilometers thick. So I think this will be the first step, really, to, to try to reach the moho, the boundary between the crust and the mantle, and see if we can get direct samples of the Earth's mantle. But to actually go through the mantle would probably be beyond the realm of existing engineering and technology. That's right, that's right. When we actually made a hole that's uh, 12.5 kilometres deep, that uh, the temperature at that depth actually exceeded the anticipated temperatures. So the drill basically started melting and they had to stop the project at that stage. So I suppose you could look at it and say that the Earth's core and the mantle are, there's a connection, everything's part of the same cycle, and it, it could all be used to sort of fuel green power in the future. If there's a way of getting through the crust in a shallow place to this, the hot mantle, could that be then used for green energy, geothermal energy? I think you don't need to drill that deep for the geothermal energy, right? And what we have achieved so far, really, I think is still within the realm of the Earth's crust. So you don't need to, to, to go that deep. But of course, all of us, all of my colleagues who study the Earth's deep interior, at least in our imagination, we want to be Terranauts, you know, going all the way down to the inner core, like in the movie, the core, right? I'm wondering about, as well, this idea of collaboration, because you're reading, I presume, these seismic readings from around the world. Is it a discipline that brings people together around the world while we're looking into the core? Absolutely. There are no political boundaries in our field. It is a highly international discipline. And as I said, we get privileged to not just meet and work with colleagues around the world, but also to travel to very nice and exotic places. So we have to be extremely innovative and creative about the methods that we use. And certainly one of the aspects of our job is to go to the field, deploy instruments in the remote locations, and then possibly record large earthquakes over the period of time. And is your research applicable to looking at other planets as well to find out how their cores and their different layers interact? That's a great question. Yes, so everything we know about the other planets' interiors is predicated on what we know about the Earth and the methods that we developed on Earth. So most recently, we have applied some of the methods that we use here on Earth to Mars, with the difference that on Mars we had a single instrument. And we had to play 
a mathematical trickery there. And I'll try to just quickly describe what we did, because with the inside seismometer on Mars, which operated for about four years, we recorded more than 1,300 Marsquakes. But only a couple of dozen of those Marsquakes were large enough so that we could use them to illuminate the interior of Mars. But everything we do on Earth, we do with thousands of seismic stations that are placed around the world. On Mars, we had a single seismometer. So what we did is we changed the positions of the located Marsquakes, and they became virtual receivers, whereas the only receiver we had became a virtual source or virtual Marsquakes, if you want. And with that mathematical trickery, because from the point of view of seismic waves, it doesn't matter if you travel from point A to point B or from point B to point A, you're going to see the same structure. And by playing this game, we were able to measure the similarity of the seismic waves that traveled through the Mars interior, and we measured the radius of the Mars core. And it turns out that the Mars has a pretty large core, almost half the size of Mars, which is very similar to the Earth's core. But what's still puzzling seismologists and geophysicists and scientists is that the Mars magnetic field existed sometime in the past, but it ceased to exist. And the question is why, right? Because if Mars has a large core that's most likely liquid, that's a very similar condition to the Earth. So the Earth has a large liquid core. The rotation of Mars is very similar to the rotation of the Earth. It's it's similar to one day. So the question is why the magnetic field of Mars stopped to exist. These are very exciting questions that we are hoping to probe in the future with more data and you know more instruments on the surface of the Mars and other planets. And the next planet is our moon. And you might be aware that there's an international race to get on the moon again, in particular near the south pole of the moon, where at least four countries in the near future are hoping to deploy a seismometer. And one of these countries is Australia. So I'm very proud of that. So the future of your research is based on space and planets out in the solar system and also on Earth. How do you see the Earth-based research developing? I should say that when it comes to the Earth's surface, we are in the mapping stage. So we are mapping the interior or, should I say, the underground architecture of the Earth, right, close to its surface. But when it comes to its deep structure, we are still in the discovery stage. And that's what makes our field extremely exciting. And that's that's what I always try to convey to a new generation of scientists, that probably seismology and geophysics, together with astronomy, astrophysics, engineering, and other exciting fields, is the right field for the 21st century. And any progress we made on Earth, any new method that we develop, for sure is going to be used on other planets in this century.
So, just like me on the beach, geologists have only just scratched the surface when it comes to finding out what's beneath our feet. Perhaps one day in the future, Terranauts will make that Jules Verne voyage to the centre of the Earth, and who knows, maybe other planets too. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Professor Hervoy Kalchich. Thank you very much. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition. And follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time. Why? was written and presented by Luke Turner. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Why?